first keeping score, this is AUL, that's the anatomy of the upper limb. Five, I think, AL5, and this is on the anatomy of the shoulder. I should start by saying I'm not an orthopaedic surgeon, but I'm going to try and look at the anatomy from a clinical and surgical standpoint. Now, it's an obvious thing to say that the glenohumeral joint is a synovial ball and socket joint. But if the anatomy or surgical candidate starts that way in their oral or written answer, it shows us, or the examiners, that the candidate has at least some sort of systematic approach. Now, I know too that biologically or perhaps evolutionarily, the scapula sits at the back with the coracoid process anterior. The epiphyseal growth center runs across the joint line, and that's actually beneficial so that the joint surfaces adjust during growth at the bone ends. We know too that there are similarities and differences between the ball and socket shoulder and the ball and socket hip. There is a, a, a kind of a um, trade-off of stability for mobility. The natural inclination of the shoulder towards dislocation is the measure of the difference in surface area of the head of the humerus to the glenoid cavity, where there's a four-to-one disparity between the largeness, if you like, of the round humeral head and the shallowness of the glenoid. Now, the dynamics of this connection are altered by the increase in glenoidal depth provided by the glenoidal labrum of fibrocartilage. Now, when we talk in general about joints or about any joint, we want to then start by talking about the articulating surfaces, then get on to the capsule, the synovial membrane, the ligaments, the bursi, and then the surrounding musculature, um, the blood and nerve supply of each joint, then the movements, the factors that are in favour of, of or against stability of the joint, then surgical access, and then maybe some relevant areas of growth and development. So each particular joint in the way that you're describing it can be described in each of those particular components or compartments, if you like. Now, in the case of the shoulder, the capsule of this joint is attached around the scapula from the supraglenoid tubercle. We've discussed the scapular anatomy, actually, in an earlier podcast. And the capsule is attached around the margins of the labrum glenoid ali. Its attachment is the articular humeral surface, which is the head and around the anatomical neck where the head joins the rest of the humerus. That's the anatomical as opposed to the surgical neck. Although the capsule, of course, extends down anteriorly to that so-called surgical neck running across the upper end of the intertubercular groove where it's bridged by the intracapsular part of the long head of the biceps. Now, that specialised little area runs between the greater and the lesser tuberosities of the humerus, and that thickening there is called the transverse humeral ligament, which just sort of completes the circle, if you will. Pretty easy, all right? 
Now, there's a gap in the anterior capsule which allows the large subscapular bursa to communicate with the main glenohumeral joint. And sometimes that effect is also seen on the back with the infraspinatus or the infraspinous bursa. The capsule is pretty thick and it's strong, but it has a lot of uh, redundancy in it. All of the tendons of the so-called short scapula or rotator cuff muscles fuse with it, so they exert their pull on it indirectly. Okay, well, that's all pretty straightforward. The synovial membrane, which is next on our schedule, pretty much follows the capsule internally, lining the capsule and running over the labrum glenoidale, as it's called in many books. And if it is to communicate directly with bursi, then it herniates through the capsule. Um, the capsule, as I've said, is very lax with a definitive cul-de-sac anteroinferiorly. Now, strictly, there are some glenohumeral ligaments, but these are typically fairly weak. They're effectively capsular thickenings, both above and below the area where there is a herniation into the subscapular bursa in that anterior part of the capsule. And if anything, they, are, that is the glenohumeral ligaments, are arthroscopic landmarks. And I think for those who are interested, there's quite a nice article on these by a fellow called Andreas Bookhart and, uh, and Richard Dembski in Clinical Orthopaedics. It's going back a bit from 2002. It's a little old, but it's a fairly good one. It's traditionally stated that the anterior band and the inferior glenohumeral ligament are primary anterior stabilisers of the glenohumeral joint itself. And I'll elaborate a little bit later on shoulder stability factors from an anatomical point of view. <clears throat> now, the coracohumeral ligament arises from the dorsolateral coracoid at its base, and it blends with the capsular's two bands to the greater and the lesser tuberosity. That's the part that forms the tunnel, as I've said already, for the long-headed biceps. But it's also the bit that blends inferiorly with the superior glenohumeral ligament. And that superior glenohumeral ligament arises from the supraglenoid tubercle, just in front of the biceps, actually, and it inserts into the medial aspect of the lesser tuberosity, so that it anteriorly supports or covers that biceps tendon. In about 5% of people, that's actually missing. The middle glenohumeral ligament arises from the same territory and part of the glenoidal labrum, but it blends a little with the subscapularis tendon, and it's typically pretty thin. It's around about 2 to 4 millimetres or so thick. And then the inferior glenohumeral ligament is a bit more complex, like a little hammock, and it has sort of labrum anchoring points, which include anterosuperior, inferior and posteroinferior components. So it inserts around the anatomical neck of the humerus below the lesser tuberosity. If you only grab a humerus, if you have one, and you can confirm that little point of where the capsule attaches and where the inferior glenohumeral ligament attaches. And... Um, it completely attaches, if you like, to the articular surface of the humeral head in a kind of V-shape. Now, these limit shoulder abduction, these ligaments, and the lateral or external rotation. About a third of people 
uh, are actually missing the sort of posto-inferior part of the inferior glenohumeral ligament. So you can be missing an inferior and a middle glenohumeral ligament to some extent. Now, if you think of the anatomy, the superior glenohumeral ligament, along with the coracohumeral ligament, will therefore be really inferior stabilizers of the shoulder, particularly when it is adducted, adducted, and they limit this rather unusual movement of lateral rotation of the arm. We don't do a lot of that, but the, there is some of that. The um, main ligament restraining abduction is, however, the coracohumeral ligament. And uh, in studies, that's about three to four times stronger than the superior glenohumeral ligament. And the point of failure, of course, between the two is different. The superior glenohumeral ligament failing at its distal attachment and the coracohumeral ligament tending to fail proximally. And likewise, the middle glenohumeral, when present, is taut in a sort of 45-degree abduction and external rotation of the arm. And so, therefore, it's an anterior stabiliser, in effect. And this complex is the most important stabiliser against antero-inferior shoulder dislocation and the most commonly injured component of the capsule in such an injury, which is the typical shoulder dislocation. Now, these ligaments stabilise depending on the arm position and the degree of rotation. If you orientate yourself arthroscopically, you'll see the anterior and the posterior parts of the glenoidal labrum, the humeral head, and running across the joint is then the long head of biceps. And pulling that away, you'll see by moving the arm, the subscapularis tendon in the lower part of the field, the middle glenohumeral ligament, and at the back, the so-called rotator interval. Now, that can be done uh, with typically a sort of beach chair position, the patient's in a beach chair, which allows a sort of open conversion. But there's a risk, obviously, with hypotensive anaesthesia or cerebrovascular accidents in some cases. But that's the usual position of uh, patients. So you can check out or perhaps go to a shoulder arthroscopy to check the little landmark points that I'm mentioning. The working portal typically in arthroscopy is postero-inferior with an anterior working portal, a more anterior perhaps inferior portal for some rotator cuff work to get at that rotator interval. Suture management might require more posterior portals and these portals can obviously vary a little bit. If one is looking at that because of the relationship to nerves, there's the potential risk of nerve injuries with this approach. They're unlikely. Theoretically, an auxiliary nerve or a suprascapular nerve could be injured. The posterior portal is typically placed between the infraspinatus and the teres minor. It can injure the auxiliary nerve if it's placed a little bit too low. In other words, really between the teres minor and the teres major near that quadrangular space, which is where the axillary nerve runs. And so to recap, the long head of biceps is at the top of a typical arthroscopic view in the position I've mentioned, laterally running to the biceps anchor. There's then the rotator interval between the biceps and the subscapularis tendon. Immediately, you've just got the humeral head. Laterally, you see the front and the back of the labrum. And inferiorly, there's a sort of limit by the middle glenohumeral ligament. 
Now, we do need to mention also that the coracohumeral ligament does precisely what it says. It runs between the undersurface of the coracoid process and across the top of the capsule attaching to the end of the greater tuberosity. From the medial border of the acromion is a strong, flat, triangular coracochromial ligament, and running from the lateral coracoid process, it runs above the humeral head. That's part of the so-called coracochromial arch, separated from the rotator cuff musculature by that subacromial bursa. Now, that bursa, which some books also call the subdeltoid bursa, lies under the ligament, and it's attached underneath to the tendon of the supraspinatus. It extends under the acromion if the arm is by the side, and as the arm abducts, it tends to roll under the acromion. It's a sort of point of typical tenderness in the abducted arm in bursitis. And the bursa only communicates with the shoulder uh, if the supraspinatus tendon is frayed. Now we move on next, as we've said, to the nerve supply of the shoulder, and that is from the axillary nerve, the musculocutaneous nerve, and the suprascapular nerve. That's in accordance with Hilton's law. If we not forget that, let's not forget that these capsules are supplied by thinly myelinated afferent pain fibres with only a few fibres on the synovium, and there are no afferents in the cartilage, and because of that, joint pains are often pretty poorly localised. To remind you of Hilton's law, that is the motor nerve to a muscle uh, has an articular nerve to the joint, the muscle moves, and usually there's a cutaneous branch to the skin over the joint. So that does follow it. Now, we should mention the shoulder stability. In any joint discussion, you need to define the features that control stability. Shoulder stability can be split into active and passive elements. The active stabilizers in this case include the deltoid, biceps, rotator cuff, and the passive restraints are the bony geometry, the labrum, which we've already briefly mentioned, the capsule, and the glenohumeral ligaments. That's one way to think about it. The joint is inherently unstable, and the principal issue is that the head of the humerus, as we've said, is much larger than the glenoid cavity, a difference in surface area of a factor of four, that is the articular surface of the head of the humerus is four times the area of the glenoid cavity, okay? There's a lot of confusion often at, in, in exams on that, but that's what that means. And also the fact that the capsule, although strong and supplemented or supported, is actually very lax. The glenoid shallowness is supported in its depth by the labrum, and the hole is kept in close apposition by the short scapular muscles. The stability superiorly is, of course, bony, as we've said before, the coracochromial arch, but it is supported by the short scapular muscles whose tendons fuse with the capsule, and there is, as we've said already before, a kind of guy rope support anteriorly and posteriorly by those thoracohumeral muscles, which we've considered in another podcast, the pectoralis major and the latissimus dorsi, which have very short insertions on the humerus. And that's the reason behind that. They're little strong guy ropes. Now, if you look at an articulated skeleton, if you can, if you can get access to one, 
and you can see that obviously upward displacement of the shoulder is prevented by the bony coracochromial arch, by which I mean the coracoid, the acromion, the coracochromial ligament. The whole thing really is, uh, is called the coracochromial arch, along, of course, I guess, with the buffer of the subacromial bursum. Now, the tendons of interest for us, subscapularis, supraspinatus, infraspinatus, and teres minor, all fuse with the capsule, as we've said, and that's supported by the long head of biceps and the long head of triceps. The former arises from the supraglenoid tubercle to run intracapsularly. The latter lies just beneath the humeral head, which is where the capsule laxly attaches to the humerus, and which is the weakest part of the joint and why dislocations, uh, given the average mechanism of distraction, almost always antero-inferior. We can come back to that later on. Now, I've really reiterated a lot of the things that we've said there quite deliberately so that they're reinforced. The way this is structured permits the appreciation also of movements. Now, I've said this is not just glenohumeral movement, we've said it before, but it's a more complex thoracoacromial articulation. You can go back to that podcast, uh, uh, which I think was AUL2, on the pectoral girdle. Now, the movements can be simplified as flexion, extension, abduction, adduction, and rotation, with circumduction, the process of combinations of orderly flexion and abduction, extension and abduction, a bit like the activities needed to enlocate the shoulder after a dislocation, right? Now, if you look at the articulated skeleton, the glenoid faces backwards, a little peeping across the thoracic wall with the humeral head looking backwards, so that flexion extension movements, of course, are therefore not pure because the plane of the joint is a little bit oblique to the sagittum. So any abduction, adduction at 90 degrees is then also a little oblique to the coronal plane. Got it? The structure of the articulated joint shows that the humeral head can move only so far. That is, we run out of articular surface after abduction so that the head has to rotate in order to lift the arm above the head. You can try it in your own arm, pretty easy to determine. And to further abduct, one needs obviously lateral rotation. Coronal abduction is the activity of the deltoid and the supraspinatus. The supraspinatus is actually the initiator of abduction. And that's opposed, obviously, by the subscapularis, the teres major, the teres minor, and the infraspinatus. The short scapulars adduct, except for the supraspinatus, as we mentioned, with flexion by the clavicular part of the pectoralis major, anterior deltoid, the anterior part of the deltoid, and the long head of biceps, an extension by the posterior part of the deltoid and the latissimus dorsi and also by the long head of triceps. Lateral rotation is the job then of the infraspinatus and teres minor, those muscles at the back, and medial rotation is the task of the more front muscles, the subscapularis and the teres major. So I would recommend that you pick up a scapula, pick up a humerus or look at an articulated scapula and humerus articulated skeleton and just try and figure out where the short rotators are and how they uh, basically largely adduct and either laterally or medially rotate. 
Now, we want to talk a little bit about surgical approaches and surgical anatomy. I think perhaps just very briefly before we get on to that, we could just mention dislocated shoulder or at least the anatomy of it. It's antero-inferior for the reasons that I've mentioned before. The posterior dislocation represents only about 10% or so of dislocations of the shoulder and it's more a feature more commonly of an epileptic fit um, <coughs> or even an electrocution. And in this one, the coracoid process is prominent and the arm may be held in a degree of internal rotation. Now, the normal antero-inferior dislocation, the X-ray of the typical dislocation, shows the head sitting inferiorly, the humeral head, and uh, it, that may be associated with greater and lesser tuberosity fractures. There are, of course, uh, I think the typical closed methods of reduction or enlocation. There's the Cocker's method that we know and the Hippocratic method. Um, uh, the Cocker's method, you can look up these. There's some good YouTubes on it. But typically, you should place a small uh, towel underneath the shoulder so that you can pull, actually, the humerus down. And then you're really just sort of laterally rotating the head of the humerus and then adducting the arm close to the side and then just immediately rotating it back into position. And that usually works pretty well. Recently, some people have gone away from this a little bit because of the potential of neural injury. Um, the Hippocratic method, which is the old method, is a fairly good method, but it relies on the person being just lying prone. And you're just sort of gently lifting the arm. And as you gradually <coughs> kind of lift it and abduct it, it falls into um, position. There are a number of these other methods that have been described to reduce the incidence of complications associated with the Cocker's method. And if you're interested in those, you can look them up. There is a scapular method. There's a method of external rotation. Both the sort of Stimson techniques or the Sparzo or Milch techniques, really you're basically just lifting the arm, really, and actually then pushing onto the humerus to just sort of push it back um, into position. There are, of course, other lesions that anatomically occur in association with these uh, shoulder dislocations that one should mention. The typical Bankart lesion, which develops in the glenoidal labrum, that that's disrupted. Um, it may or may not be with a bone fragment, in which case some people refer to it as a bony Bankart. The soft Bankart lesions typically involve the inferior anterior labrum near the inferior glenohumeral ligament. There may be what's called a Hill-Sachs deformity, that's a, a compression fracture of the posterolateral humeral head that can occur with anterior dislocations. There can be a reverse Hill-Sachs lesion, which you can find in a posterior dislocation. Some people refer to that also as a McLaughlin lesion or deformity, and that's an impaction fracture. Uh, of part of the humeral head, kind of the anterior and medial aspects of the um, humeral head. <coughs> so we, I, I'm not going to go into a discussion of the uh, Bankart approach, of the Bankart repairs and 
uh, recurrent dislocation, habitual dislocation of joints, which people can uh, look at, at those categories of uh, patients. Uh, I don't think beyond their anatomical discussion it's going to advance our particular cause that much. It's not my area of expertise. Um, let's get on to surgical approaches and surgical anatomy. The clavicle is the only bony attachment connecting the glenohumeral joint to the axial skeleton, functions as a strut, and it suspends the glenohumeral joint off the skeletal frame. We've spoken a little bit about this before. The acromioclavicular joint is a diarthrodial joint which serves as a muscular attachment point. The coracoid is an important bony landmark with a coracoacromial ligament connecting this with the anterolateral acromion forming the so-called coracoacromial arch which we've mentioned before. The proximal humerus of course comprises the head, the surgical and anatomical necks and the greater, that is the lateral and lesser, antromedial tuberosities. Uh, these are, uh, there are also rather rotator cuff attachment points uh, there uh, for stability and, as we've said before, for the control of lateral and medial humeral rotation. So that's how the system sort of operates. To reiterate, the glenoidal labrum is a glenohumeral ligament attachment point where the superior glenohumeral ligament blends with the anterior rotator cuff musculature and the coracohumeral ligament to form the bicep pulley. The middle glenohumeral ligament runs from the anterior labrum to the lesser tuberosity and the inferior glenohumeral ligament connects the inferior glenoid to the humerus, splitting into anterior and posterior components. Now, we need to make some comments about the muscles. Some we've already covered. A few comments here. There are six muscles converging on the humerus from the scapula, which we need to be aware of. And these surround the shoulder joint, and their tendons contribute, as we've said, to the capsule. The deltoid, the supraspinatus, the infraspinatus, the teres minor, the teres major, and the subscapularis. Now, the subscapularis and teres major we've already considered in the podcast on the axilla and the breast. Let's just briefly look at these other muscles. The supraspinatus. Have a look at a scapula, and you can see that supraspinous fossa above the spine of the scapula. Now, this is a bipinnate muscle arising from the medial three-quarters of the surface, and the outer end of the bone is smooth to fit a bursa. If you look at that, it's very smooth. The tendon, like all of the rotator cuff, fuses with the shoulder capsule and is inserted into the smooth facet on the upper part of the greater tuberosity of the humerus. You go check that out and run your finger along that to confirm that. Now we know the nerve supply, that's the suprascapular nerve, we know where that comes from. We know that it gives an articular joint, uh, articular twig to the joint, right? We've said all that. And we know that this is a stabilising rotator cuff muscle, which is a strong initiator of shoulder abduction. Simple. That's all you need to do. You've passed your exam. Infraspinatus. If we look at a cadaver, below this we have the infraspinatus muscle. That arises from the posterior aspect of the thin scapular bone below the spine under a very dense infraspinous fascia that contains any hematoma in a comminuted fracture of the body of the scapula. Now the muscle is, for the reasons that are now obvious, 
multipennate, and again it runs as a tendon fused with the posterior capsule with a little lateral bare area bearing a bursa which can communicate with the joint, the infraspinous bursa. And the insertion is to the central facet of the smooth area of the greater tuberosity. And that's squeezed, if you like, a little bit between the insertions of the supraspinatus, which is a little bit above, and the teres minor, which is a little bit below. Now, of course, the nerve is still the suprascapular nerve, and the muscle is the one that stabilises, one of the stabilising muscles of the rotator cuff musculature, but it's an important lateral rotator of the humerus, pulling, really rotating the humerus around both contractions. So if you look at the back of the cadaver, as I've said before, you can imagine the infraspinatus shortening and just laterally rotating the humerus. Sub-reason. Students often seem to forget what's lateral and medial rotated, but it has to do with the insertion points. And I notice that a lot of anatomists are saying, or a lot of teachers are saying, that we don't need to know the insertion points and the origin points, but if we know them, we understand the actions of these muscles in agonism and antagonism. Now, the teres minor is uh, completely hidden by the deltoid, and it comes from the axillary border of the scapula. It passes edge to edge with the infraspinatus when you're viewing the cadaver from the back, and it ends in the lowest facet of the greater tuberosity of the humerus and a little kind of half-centimetre teardrop below. And again, just confirm that on the humerus if you can have one. If it passes behind the origin uh, it, it, rather, it, it does pass behind the origin of the long head of triceps in the formation, as we've said before, of the quadrangular space. Teres major is a different perspective, leaves the teres minor in front of the long head of triceps, if you view that from the front. The muscle is covered, as I've said before, uh, by a tough infraspinatus fascia, leaving the teres major out of that fascial attachment. And the teres minor is innervated, as we recall, by a small little medial branch of the axillary nerve. Now, this little muscle also acts as a lateral rotator, and it acts with the teres major to prevent the upward pull of the humerus by the deltoid. In other words, it's a kind of inferior stabiliser of the shoulder. All right? Now, the deltoid is then the next one that we've got to talk about. That arises from the anterior lateral one-third of the clavicle and from the lateral acromion and the underlip of the scapular spine. So it kind of drapes around the acromioclavicular joint. And it can leave acromial ridges if you look at that bone. It runs over the shoulder like a cape across the deltoid tuberosity of the humerus, which is kind of V-shaped or U-shaped area of roughness. And that area is multipennate. That makes its force of pull very strong, even if the range of movement is relatively limited. The most anterior fibres and the most posterior fibres are not multipennate, um, so that their range of movement is actually greater, but they're weaker in their pulling force. So that's the way that muscle works. The nerve supplies, of course, the axillary nerve, which is a bit like the phrenic nerve in the distribution. It tends to run radially around the muscle. In the case of the phrenic nerve, we'll go into that hopefully later this year. And that runs from a central position out peripherally. So that a vertical split in the deltoid, uh, if we think of the way the nerve runs, not just that it's the axillary nerve, but the way that it runs out from the centre to the periphery, 
a vertical split in the deltoid is going to be less denervating to the rest of the muscle, like a peripheral cut in the diaphragm. That's why I mentioned it specifically. If you're starting to make transverse cuts across the deltoid, firstly, it's not necessarily in Langer's line so that it doesn't heal as well, but you're more likely to denervate parts of the deltoid muscle. So always consider the direction, uh, really, of the branching of a particular important nerve, the way that's given off, because that affects the direction of an incision, less likely to cause muscle denervation. So this muscle, the deltoid, of course, works with the supraspinatus, as I've already said, as a principal abductor of the shoulder, and the anterior and posterior fibres act together to stabilise the shoulder in abduction. But acting separately, the anterior fibres act with the pectoralis major, that's perhaps a, an oxymoron acting separately, the, the, the separate anterior fibres of the deltoid act together with pec major to flex the shoulder and even medially rotate it a little, and the posterior fibres acting with the lat dorsi extend the shoulder, a little bit of lateral rotation with that as well. Now, there are, if you like, there are some surgical layers that are described here. Uh, people talk about layer one of the muscles around the shoulder, that's the deltoid and pectoralis major. Layer two, which is the clavipectoral fascia, which we've previously described in another podcast on the axilla. The conjoined tendon and the coracocranial ligament, that's all part layer two. Anteriorly, that's continuous, whereas posteriorly it runs into the posterior scapular fascia overlying the infraspinatus and teres minor. And then there's a layer three, which comprises the subdeltoid bursa and the underlying rotator cuff. And layer four is then the capsule of the glenohumeral joint itself. So some people describe this kind of anatomical layered approach. Now, we should be talking also, I think, about the open surgical approaches. Now, the usual shoulder approach is the deltopectoral approach and that's standard although it's diminished as an approach in recent years as shoulder surgery has become more complex and arthroscopic. Now nowadays it's primarily used for an open reduction and internal fixation of proximal humeral fractures, perhaps an associated glenoid body fracture and in shoulder arthroplasty. It was our old open approach, by the way, for a Hickman's catheter, as I've said in one of the earlier podcasts. This is best performed, the deltopectoral approach, in the modified beach chair position, the incision just inferior to the clavicle and running along the lateral border of the coracoid process in the deltopectoral interval for about 10 to 12 centimetres. The cephalic vein is identified, part of the internervous plane between the axillary and pectoral nerves. And the vein's often pushed medially, it's easier, a bit easier to protect, but uh, there may be some small tributaries to ligate there when you do that. The pectoralis major is then retracted medially, the deltoid laterally, you're entering the clavipectoral fascia which is exposed, and that's then incised and a retractor can then be inserted, and you incise the clavipectoral fascia from the inferior margin of the coracochromial ligament along the lateral border of the conjoined tendon to get a kind of subcoracoid plane 
One has to be careful there as the axillary nerve passes medially and inferiorly to the subscapularis muscle. And as that conjoint tendon is retracted, there's also even a risk of neuropraxia laterally of the musculocutaneous nerve, which enters the coracobrachialis muscle about or about five or eight to centimetres or so distal to the coracoid process. Now, if you externally rotate the arm here, the subscapularis is tensed, and that increases the distance between its insertion point and the axillary nerve. So it's less likely to be then injured. So there are these little anatomical points. The inferior subscapularis has a little leash of vessels uh, that may need to be ligated, um, if uh, that insertion is uh, being reflected. And then you've got a rotator interval there which can be incised afterwards along the inferior supraspinatus border giving access to the glenohumeral joint. You can directly incise the subscapularis here as well which leaves a little kind of one centimetre stump which can then be reattached. So that was the normal open bank art repair which is no longer done. Uh, the alternative is to take actually a little pinch off the lesser tuberosity, which can then be used for reattachment, which is uh, sometimes a bit simpler. After a, a capsulotomy, whatever the method, you're into the joint. And anatomically, in this approach, there are several structures at risk, as I've said, from the deltopectoral approach. Firstly, the cephalic vein, and uh, that is usually mobilised and then reflected. Musculocutaneous nerve, usually not seen, it's out of the way, but a retractor can cause attraction neuropraxia. The axillary nerve should always be identified as inframedial to the coracoid process after the clavipectoral fascia has been divided, and it's often actually palpable just below the subscapularis tendon. It's also quite close to the inferior glenoid, and it can be affected if there's excessive dissection inferiorly. That can occur in a shoulder arthroplasty, or sometimes where there's a capsular shift procedure. So if we do know a little bit about the, uh, the, <coughs> the surgery of this as well, in the way the anatomy affects it. There is a lateral deltoid splitting approach to get to the shoulder. It's not commonly used uh, because it's got really an auxiliary nerve risk, but it could be used to retap, for example, a greater tuberosity fracture or assist in a rotator cuff injury, for example. So it's a direct lateral deltoid split where if the incision is less than about five centimetres uh, from the acromion, the axillary nerve is less likely to be injured. But as I've said before, the longer these incisions, the more lateral retraction there is, the more likely the axillary nerve can be injured. There's also a posterior glenohumeral approach and that's pretty limited, I think, in view of modern arthroscopic surgery. About the only indication might be a posterior dislocation or some sort of glenoid osteotomy for a complex posterior glenoid scapular fracture. That's got to be pretty uncommon. The deltoid, in that case, has to be retracted pretty far laterally, and expo that exposes the teres minor and major and the long-headed triceps. And there then needs to be a plane, really, between the infraspinatus and the teres minor. And that actually places both the subscapular and the axillary nerves at risk. So between the teres minor and major, you're actually near, as, as we know, that quadrangular space. So even the posterior circumflex humeral vessels 
would be at risk with that approach. These days, I guess, it's all arthroscopic, or mostly arthroscopic anatomy, and it's effect an ideal joint, really, for arthroscopy, but it's got a thick muscular coat over it, which makes the actual decision about portal placement pretty critical, as far as I can understand. Anteriorly, at risk are the cephalic vein, as we've said, the musculocutaneous nerve, the axillary nerve, and, of course, even we forget the thoracocranial artery. A portal superior or lateral to the coracoid is therefore very unlikely to injure those nerves. The thoracocranial artery is only going to be injured with a superior port designed to enter the subacromial space. A posterior placed portal is only going to injure the axillary nerve if, as I've said before, it's placed very inferiorly. And the suprascapular nerve is only going to be at risk with a posterior portal placement that would be placed very medially. So these kinds of considerations are of relevance based on the anatomy that we know. <clears throat> the arthroscopic approaches are evolving, but they do include treatment of rotator cuff injuries, approaches to the long head of biceps, labral injuries, sort of bank heart injuries, and detachments and adhesiolysis. And there is an extension towards suprascapular nerve decompression, even exploration of the brachial plexus, using some of these minimally invasive approaches. The portals can be decided by needle and then by a blunt trocar placement with decisions for secondary portals using what are called switching sticks for external viewing. Um, a posterior portal is typically a couple of centimetres inferiorly and one centimetre or so laterally to the postero-inferior border of the acromion, as an example. I don't think we need to get into these into too great, greater detail. There can be a posterior central portal, which can be placed more in line with the glenoid, an anterior portal, typically about halfway between the coracoid process and the anterior and lateral acromion, with maybe a needle first introduced into the rotator interval, and then a Seldinger technique can be used with the dilator so that you can uh, place a port. So there's many options that are available there. Added lateral portals can be used, uh, anterolateral, also posterolateral portals, which can provide pretty good access to the subacromial space, <clears throat> and for a rotator cuff repair. Um, I think uh, uh, subacromial decompression, some form of acromioplasty, uh, these are all lateral to the acromion and either anterior or posterior is needed. So these are the kinds of anatomical decisions about port placement that orthopaedic surgeons can make based on the anatomy we understand. So long as these are not very distally placed, there's not really a lot of neural risk and there are also postero-infrolateral and subclavian portals that have been introduced. Uh, there's outside-in supraclavicular lateral acromial portals, the so-called Neviasa portal that some people can read about. There's an antero-inferior or Bankart portal, others such as the so-called Port of Wilmington, which is a, a posteriorly located portal. Uh, which shows the posterior superior glenoid if there's been a tear there or an associated fracture. And for those interested in this sort of stuff, I think you can look it up. But it's interesting from my point of view to try and correlate the anatomy with how these portals are placed for individual procedures. And that's where anatomy becomes a little bit more uh, clinically sophisticated. Now, we've also got to talk in this region a little bit about 
couple of other things. We want to talk about the acromioclavicular joint. We want to talk about the sternoclavicular joint because these are all reciprocal movements in thoracoacromial articulation. And uh, we want to also talk about the osteology of the humerus. So in the acromioclavicular joint, the clavicle, as I've said before, acts as a strut with the AC and the SC joints acting as kind of like a counterpoise for reciprocal movements. The acromioclavicular joint, the AC joint, has become important, as we know, with a range of contact sports. It's a diarthrodial synovial joint with a very small surface area and very strong ligaments providing stability. So I always think of these as very similar to the sort of costo-vertebral joints for the ribs or the sternoclavicular joint. The articular surfaces are very small, but the things that hold them in stability are their ligaments. The articular surfaces are covered by fibrocartilage, which is supported by rather weak AC ligaments with an incomplete fibrocartilaginous disc. The ligaments, as I've said, are the most important, and these include the coracoclavicular ligament, which classically consists of two parts, the conoid and the trapezoid, so that you need to examine a clavicle here. We're looking for the conoid tubicle and the trapezoid ridge. Um, um, these typically attach to a ridge on the coracoid process, extending variably laterally. The joint is innervated by the supraclavicular nerves coming from the cervical plexus. The joint moves with the scapula as it moves on the clavicle with the scapula on the thoracic wall moving as well as a protraction, retraction around the thoracic wall, gliding through the axis of the conoid ligament. There may be rotation with an axis through the conoid ligament and the joint itself, and there's also elevation and depression. With abduction and adduction, there's a kind of swing in the scapula. Last calls it a little bit like a pendulum. That's a little harder to comprehend, but there is an axis that occurs in that swing through the CC ligament, the coracoclavicular ligament. Now, the scapula and the upper limb effectively hang suspended from the clavicle with the coracoclavicular ligament providing the AC joint stability. Medially directed forces through the glenoid and the clavicle are then transmitted through the trapezoid ligament and from the clavicle to the first rib via the costoclavicular ligament. And this explains why the fall on the outstretched hand results in a clavicular fracture. Ligaments, the costoclavicular ligament medially, the coracoclavicular ligament laterally, these things remain essentially very stable and your clavicle splits in between or breaks. In practical terms, this is injured, this sort of uh, joint, the AC joint, is injured in lacrosse and hockey and rugby and football. The sort of joint has more dynamic movement than previously described, and it can translate four to six millimetres in the AP direction and superior planes with a kind of five to eight degree rotary motion during scapular rotation, about 40 to 45 degrees during abduction. In women, the conoid attachment's actually a bit more lateral as measured on the clavicle with a narrower trapezoid element. And so this might account for why there is an increasing number of these injuries as women are getting more and more involved in contact sports. The ligament is affected by a direct blow in the adducted position, typically the acromion sort of driven inferiorly, which kind of stretches the joint and capsule, resulting in AC ligament failure. 
And if it's large enough, the uh, ligament fails with a high degree of AC separation. Uh, there's a variation, if you like. There's a so-called Allman classification. So that you can have a type 1 where the AC ligament is an AC ligament strain with really no radiographic changes. A type 2, which is a disrupted AC ligament, but the CC ligaments are intact. So in other words, radiographically, there might be slight depression of the acromion relative to the clavicle. A type 3 unrestrained AC joint with radiographic distraction. A type 5 injury, for example, can be added when the distal clavicle is kind of buttonholed through the trapezial fascia and that prevents reduction. So there, there is this classification system that's available. And there are type 4 and type 6 injuries with complete disruption of both ligament complexes, differential displacement of the clavicle, posterior and superior displacement more than 100% of the CC distance, inferior displacements that are similar etc. These kinds of things. And for those interested, you can look um, these classifications up. It's accepted, for example, that types 1 and 2 injuries can usually be left alone. They can be managed conservatively, whereas a type 4 up to 6 injury is typically operated. And it's the type 3 is the sort of in the, in the middle that are controversial. The operation uh, that is, is done, the so-called Weaver-Dunn reconstruction with distal clavicle excision and transfer of the coracochromial ligament. One can use an acromial bone block or autografts or various arthroscopic approaches which can be used. People have used reco of the CC ligament using a tibialis tendon allograft which appears to be biomechanically preferable in the literature. So alternatives also include primary AC joint fixation with K-wires or hook plates coracoclavicular fixation with a coracoclavicular screw or a suture anchor or suture loop, dynamic muscle transfers, ligamentous reconstructions of the type I've mentioned. Um, there are all a number of options that are available. And I think when we think of the anatomy here, we should remember with such approaches around the coracoid process, where the muscular cutaneous nerve is at risk, and also uh, the brachial plexus, subclavian vessels, uh, if dissection is very medial. So there are these anatomical things to think about. The next area, I think, is the sternoclavicular joint. Um, that's a saddle-shaped synovial joint separated into two sections, as we know, by an intervening fibrocartilaginous disc. It's actually an atypical joint since the synovial surfaces are covered by fibrocartilage and not hyaline cartilage with articulation concave in this case with the manubrium and also along the inferior border of the clavicular shaft and onto the first costal cartilage so that joint extends there and so the sternal clavicle actually projects well above the sternum and it's uh, uh, sort of placed on top of it uh, and not so much really alongside. The joint is in two separate cavities surrounded by a capsule with the disc attached to the clavicle and to the costal cartilage so that it's not just lying free. So that's worth checking out in your personal dissections because it adds to the medial stability of the joint as the arm is drawn downwards. There are anterior and posterior sternoclavicular ligaments which are weaker anteriorly where subluxation is commoner very strong posteriorly, so an internal subluxation of the sternoclavicular joint 
largely doesn't occur except with a tremendous amount of thoracic trauma. It's rare for subluxation backwards, as you might imagine. And there's an interclavicular ligament which runs across the top, uh, which is also relatively weak. The main strength is the costoclavicular ligament, of course, which can be a complex structure with a bursa intervening. And these ligaments run in the same direction, if you like, as the external and internal intercostal musculature. The anterior lamina runs up and lateral and the posterior lamina up and medial. So there's some homology here of the chest wall, even in its upper extent, very similar to the sort of directions of the external intercostal and the internal intercostal, very similar to the directions of the external oblique in the abdomen and the internal oblique. Now, the nerve supply of the sternoclavicular joint is, of course, the supraclavicular nerves. The joint moves as a fulcrum, not around the joint, but around the costoclavicular ligament. And the movements of the arm and the sternoclavicular joint, as I've said, are reciprocal. And with shrugging of the shoulder, the clavicle moves on the disc, whereas in protraction of the scapula, the clavicle tends to move more with the disc. And there's also some biodynamic rotation, which is transmitted via the costoclavicular ligament. It can be felt if you have an arm midway between supination and pronation, and you flex it above the head and extend it. Um, the subclavius also, as a muscle, as you might imagine, can provide some degree of stability. Um, supraclavicular uh, pardon me, sternoclavicular joint injury is actually pretty rare and it represents only about 3% of shoulder girdle injuries. Usually fairly forcible thoracic wall injury is required. Uh, there's a disease also, um, I think from memory, Friedrich's disease, which is an avascular necrosis of the medial clavicular end, which can affect that joint. That usually occurs in adolescence. So our next area is then getting on to the osteology of the humerus. The twist of the humerus means that the head faces backwards somewhat and medially with a rotation of both the medial and lateral epicondyles so that the medial epicondyle faces the same way as the head. If you look at the humerus, if you've got a separate humerus, just examine it that way or place it on a table. So if you lie a humerus on a table, it rotates facing laterally. The articular margin of the head is the anatomical neck, and below the epiphyseal line is the surgical neck. And it's not uncommon to be asked something about the humerus uh, in, in your anatomy viva. The head is covered with hyaline cartilage with the capsule following the head and the intertubercular groove, as we've mentioned, except medially, where it encloses the epiphyseal line and, as we've said, is inframedially lax for about two centimetres or so along the humeral shaft. The medial lip of the bicipital groove extends medially as the lip into the lesser tuberosity taking in its smooth area the subscapularis tendon and below this for about five centimetres or so, the, te the teres major. The bicipital groove itself, now more commonly referred to as the intertubercular groove, takes the stout latissimus dorsi tendon, as we know. Uh, 
The greater tuberosity takes the tendons of supraspinatus, that's the superior facet, behind which is the infraspinatus facet, and posteriorly is the lowest smooth facet for the teres minor. The lateral bicipital groove lip runs down into the deltoid tuberosity, and it takes the pectoralis major tendon, which has a kind of laminar attachment, posteriorly in particular, which extends upwards for some distance. Now, as we move down the shaft, the deltoid tuberosity is then seen. It's a V shape, attaching the acromial part of the deltoid below with a prominent nutrient foramen sitting here, which is the area of the groove of the radial nerve. And laterally here is the, then as you're running down, the lateral supracondylar ridge, and it runs into the lateral epicondyle, an attachment point for the lateral intermuscular septum. The next podcast is on the arm <coughs> and the elbow and the superior radio ulna joint. The medial side does much the same, and it runs down as a medial supracondylar ridge, and it attaches the medial intermuscular septum. Now, we don't normally, as I've said, discuss insertions these days, but here I think we, we need to. It helps in humeral exposure. Above the foramen, and you check it out on the humerus if you have one, opposite the deltoid tuberosity is the attachment of the coracobrachialis, and that's important because it's central in the neurology of the arm. There's often a little rough mark there on the bone, and that flexor part of the bone is smooth, but between the ridges it gives the brachialis origin, quite a broad origin, and that's also the point of a takeoff of a medial supracondylar spur, which can attach itself as a point of high nerve compression to the medial uh, epicondyle, and which represents the embryological third head of the coracobrachialis muscle. Now, there's a curious homology here, if you like, with the lower limb. If we think about it, the coracobrachialis, which is somewhat insignificant is the counterpart of the adductors, adductors of the lower limb, the adductor longus, brevis and magnus. And it takes its origin in the coracoid process, which has some bony ossification, osteology, homology with the pubis. In some animals, this muscle, as I've said, the, cor the coracobrachialis has three heads, although in man it typically has two which entrap the neural component of the anterior arm, or the nerve of the anterior compartment, if you like, the compartment nerve, the musculocutaneous nerve. Now, in the event that there's a third head of coracobrachialis, it is represented by this so-called ligament on the uh, medial side, the so-called ligament of Struthers, which causes a very high median nerve and occasionally even a neurovascular compression syndrome. Now, if we look at the back of the humerus, that's dominated by the radial groove, above which arises flatly the lateral head of triceps, extending right up to the teres minor insertion. And below is the broad or long origin of the medial head of triceps, extending down almost as far as the olecranon. And it has such an extensive origin um, that it attaches to the medial and the lateral intermuscular septa, uh, that medial head of triceps. Now, we'll cover the triceps a little later in the next podcast, but I think it's really 
poorly named. The lateral head is lateral, all right, but the long head is medial, and the medial head is deep. So that provides a little bit of confusion. We'll get into that uh, next time. When we get to the lower end of the humerus, we get into this very complex articular surface with the medial epicondyle and the common flexor origin, common flexor muscle origin, and the lateral epicondyle with the common extensor origin. Anteriorly is the capitulum and the trochlea, the capitulum for articulation with the head of the radius and the trochlea being the more sort of semicircular element that extends posteriorly towards the olecranon fossa at the back. And that trochlear tilt contributes to what is called the carrying angle, the way the forearm sits angulated medially to the humerus, a mild cubitus valgus which we normally have, which allows the arms to swing without us hitting the hips all the time. There's a kind of 14 degree carrying angle in females, about 11 degrees on average in males. And it disappears in full flexion. Anteriorly on the lower shaft, of course, we see the coronoid fossa. Laterally is a shallower radial fossa for accommodation of the radial head when the arm is in full flexion. The capsule attaches to the medial and lateral epicondyles but extends slightly above all of these fossae, that is the olecranon, coronoid and radial fossae, so that the synovium runs along inside and clothes or pads all of these fossae I've just mentioned. The medial epicondyle has, of course, the pronator teres arising above the common flexor origin. Uh, that's actually a second head from the medial supracondylar ridge. The area near the trochlear at the back, as we know, houses the ulnar nerve, uh, the funny bone area. The lateral epicondyle is less prominent, and the facet for the extensor musculature is actually located a little bit even anteriorly. Above this, over the lateral supracondylar ridge, is the origin, as I've said, of the lateral intermuscular septum. And in its upper part, that's the origin of brachioradialis, and just below that, the extensor carpi radialis longus. So both of those muscles will arise from that lateral supracondylar ridge. Very distally, there's an attachment of the radial collateral ligament and even a little bit of the supinator muscle in some cases. And behind that is a shallow pit for the ancaneus, close to the medial or deep triceps head. And part of that attaches to the capsule of the shoulder joint so that as you're extending your elbow, that nips out or pulls out the capsule, stops it from being nipped during elbow extension. Now, the shaft of the humerus can be approached at the front, high up, by opening up the deltopectoral groove that we've already spoken about. But for a lower approach, it needs to split off quite a bit of the brachialis muscle, the origin of which I've described. If a posterior approach is to be used, obviously the radial nerve is the thing at risk between the lateral and medial heads of triceps, so we don't usually use that. The usual approach uh, for a comminuted or even a pathological fracture that cannot be managed with an intramedullary wire is an anterior or certainly an anterolateral approach staying well away from the median neurovascular bundle. So that's the usual thing for something like that. Now, I think we don't forget, obviously, the ossification. 
uh, of the humerus. Uh, it begins typically at about the sixth week. It's in endochondral ossification with cartilage at the upper and lower end of the bone at birth. A central ossification centre starts at about eight weeks and there are secondary ossification centres in the upper end. Uh, you may see one in the head at about a year. That's useful for an x-ray to determine the age of a child, the greater tuberosity at about the third year, the lesser tuberosity at the fifth. So it's one, three, five. These all fuse by seven as the growing epiphyseal end of the bone and it fuses the whole area by skeletal maturity. So you'll see these little areas that can assist you in sort of diagnosing the age of a straight x-ray. At the lower end, there's a separate centre usually for the capitulum and the lateral trochlea at the second year, the medial epicondyle at the fifth year, the rest of the trochlea for about the twelfth year, the lateral epicondyle at the thirteenth year. So you can use these as markers. The medial epicondyle is separated with a kind of downward projection of the shaft separating off the ulnar nerve. And then that whole area fuses by around about 18 years of age. So that's it for this particular podcast. Thanks so much for listening. The next one is going to be about the uh, anterior and posterior aspects of the arm. And uh, also we'll try and include the elbow joint and the superior radio ulnar joint. <laughs>